Divine Mercy University is excited to announce that the Master's in Psychology degree can now be completed in just 16 months. Students can save nearly $3,000 on the total cost of tuition. For more information, visit divinemercy.edu slash America. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I could use a break from the drinks. <laughs> yeah, no, we had a we had a fantastic celebration for my 30th birthday this weekend. Thanks to Zach, he organized it, and it was wonderful, but... We're both. <laughs> no, thanks to thanks yeah. to Zach's wife. She's the great organizer. I'm a I'm a convener of people, but man, so is she. But real brains behind the operation. But. Yeah. If last if last week was the party podcast, this is this is the recovery one. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, for what's on tap this week, we've got Pedialyte, which is not just for three year olds. Yeah. No, I did not. Pedialyte has like gone through this rebranding where it looks like a sports drink. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, uh, for three-year-olds and 30-year-olds, um, a very nutritious beverage. Well, cheers to that. Yeah, cheers. And it was exciting to uh, see the results of your Twitter poll, I guess, for you. Ash. Yeah, you heard that. We still got young in the yeah, intro. Yeah, so we, we did not <laughs> remove that. We are still young, hip, and lay, even though Ashley has turned the big three zero. Um, our, you, yeah. you asked your Twitter followers, and 81% said that 30s is the 20s in the church. Yeah. People said <laughs> 30s is the like one year old in the church in church age. Yeah, well, not this podcast. So you are, I think, f- officially yeah. promoted to senior host. Yes, I'll take it. <laughs> All right. And who are we talking to this week? We're talking to Karnia Lazoya. She's the executive director for university communications at the Catholic University of America and the host of the new podcast Crisis. That's right. And, you know, listeners of this show have known that we've been following the sexual abuse crisis in the church uh, pretty seriously since the summer of 2018. America's done its own coverage. You, You may have listened to Deliver Us. And, you know, lots has happened since 2018. And 2020 has been a year focusing sort of on coronavirus, presidential election. But there is still work that we need to do as a church to confront sexual abuse. And yeah, a lot of times when we talk about the abuse crisis um, in the last two years, you know, the question has been, okay, what is the what is the church doing? Um, and this and this podcast is a really good answer from the Catholic University of America, which is it's known as the Bishop's University. Um, so this is you know kind of at the heart of the institutional church, um, but. Within that, they have this thing called the Catholic Project, which is largely lay-led, um, and they they wanted to take this issue on um, and really do a deep dive into um, the causes and and what the church has done since 2018. So stick around for our conversation with Karna, but first we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So last week we talked about Catholics on the Supreme Court and why there are so many of us. And this week it is official. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who's a Catholic mother of seven and former law professor at Notre Dame, is President Trump's pick to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Right. And in the week since, there's been a lot of discussion in the media about um, Judge Barrett's uh, particular flavor of Catholicism, uh, known as charismatic Catholicism, um, which is something uh, I don't really know that much about. 
So we wanted to bring on our colleague, Michael O'Loughlin. He's the national correspondent for American media, and he's been digging into questions around uh, Amy Conant Barrett's faith and what that means for how she will act on the Supreme Court. So welcome back to Jesuitical, Mike. Hey, Ashley. Hey, thanks for coming on. It's good to be with you. <laughs> All right. So like, let's let's get into what her faith is before we uh, kind of do the meta discussion about how the media has been covering it. So what is what is People of Praise, this group of charismatic Catholics that she is a part of? Yeah, People of Praise is a lay-led group of Catholics uh, headquartered in South Bend, Indiana, near the University of Notre Dame, that traces its roots back to the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church that began shortly after Vatican II. Uh, it's a group of people who are drawn to kind of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and their worship service might look a little different to Catholics who are used to kind of the standard mass. Um, it might look more Pentecostal. So there's an emphasis on uh, speaking in tongues, praise and worship music, uh, kind of how the faith moves you and animates your life. Uh, it's a group of people who choose to live together, um, kind, of, kind of in a community. They often live in the same neighborhoods. Uh, you might live with people who are not part of your biological family, but who kind of share your uh, way of practicing your faith. And the idea being that church isn't something you just do on the weekends. It's part of your entire life, and you kind of commit to prayer group, sharing uh, faith, uh, looking out for each other's uh, kids, maybe sharing meals together, faith discussions. It's a it's a whole way of life that kind of I think peaked in the '70s and '80s, uh, but it's still in existence today. And we uh, know that uh, Amy Coney Barrett's parents belong to the group, and we think she did, but because they keep their membership list secret, we don't know for sure. And if this is an ecumenical group, uh, how do we know exactly what they believe? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it is ecumenical, but um, almost 90% of its members are Catholic. So they kind of point out that they are not a church. Um, so when people say, what do you believe? They say, well, look at what the Catholic Church teaches, uh, and our Catholic members believe that. So there is an emphasis on kind of traditional Catholicism when it comes to family, um, the, you know, the importance of a mother and father. Traditional marriage is you know, one man and one woman. Those views, you know, they're, they're fairly standard. They're Catholic views, but it's kind of ascribes a conservative, uh, people look at these groups as being kind of conservative because they uphold uh, traditional understandings of morality. And how has the media been focusing in on this? What have they been like considering to be controversial or, um, you know, kind of out of bounds for a Supreme Court nomination? Is there something controversial about people of praise? Yeah, so it, it would be called, they call themselves a covenant community. So uh, members kind of take a pledge to be part of this group for life. So, you know, that's kind of an unusual piece of religion that we don't, you know, hear about very often in the Catholic Church, uh, these sort of lay covenant communities. But the big issue is this idea that there was a connection between these charismatic groups and then the popular TV show, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, this kind of idea first came up in 2017 when Amy Coney Barrett was going through a confirmation process for a federal uh, judge position. And it was kind of debunked pretty quickly, but it was still pretty secretive. These groups, um, we, we don't know a lot about them. People are unfamiliar with how people live in these groups. And it kind of came back again three years later. She was being considered for the Supreme Court with a Newsweek article claiming that Margaret Atwood had based The Handmaid's Tale on this group that people have praised. Uh, and that story kind of went viral because it fed into these conceptions that people had of conservative Catholics like Amy Coney Barrett. Right. And The Handmaid's Tale, it's a dystopian novel where like women are subjugated to men. It's a theocracy. So 
you know, not a comparison. <laughs> Most people would want. No, it was not a favorable comparison. Uh, and it was just wrong. Uh, there was subsequent reporting that uh, Margaret Atwood was kind of inspired by a different Catholic charismatic community, uh, but it was not this one. So that but that kind of took on a life of its own. And people were saying that if she was a member of this group, and she made a covenant to stay part of this group, like how would that influence her as a judge or a justice on the Supreme Court? Uh, and it kind of fed this idea that uh, she was perhaps too conservative, because the worry really is, is she the fifth vote that people who want Roe versus Wade to be overturned? Uh, have been hoping for for decades. That's kind of what this is a proxy war for. Now, if this is all about politics, really, and it's about abortion in particular, do you think that the people in the media or Democrats are out of line and asking about Barrett's faith? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, Back in 2017, when she was going through this confirmation process, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California was kind of going down that line of questioning, asking how she was influenced by her faith uh, in relation to things like abortion. And Feinstein made a comment uh, suggesting that, quote, the dogma lives loudly within you, uh, saying that she was too Catholic, maybe, uh, which kind of became a rallying cry for people who thought, in her statements was some anti-Catholicism. Uh, so this question about religion and Amy Coney Barrett has been around for a few years. You know, Feinstein's remarks were kind of condemned by people on the left and the right as kind of crossing the line. Because I think that, uh, you know, if people say that they're motivated by their faith and their professional lives are influenced by what they believe, I think that is a fair line of questioning. I don't think the way that uh, Senator Feinstein handled it was a a fair way. But, you know, if we say on the one hand that faith has a place in the public square, uh, which I think most of us do, people of faith kind of say that, then we should be willing to talk about how it influences what we believe and how we act. It's just there's a way to do that. And unfortunately, as we see religious illiteracy increasing in society, I think um, reasonable ways to engage faith becomes harder and harder. Well, Religious literacy for our listeners and for your readers is definitely on the rise because of the good reporting you do. So thanks again, Mike, for coming on the show and breaking this story down and for all the reporting you're doing right now. Thanks, Zach. All right. Talk to you later. Bye, guys. All right. That was Michael Lachlan, and you can read his coverage of the Supreme Court nomination and other election coverage of his at americamagazine.org. Ashley, what's our next story? Next, we're going to St. Louis, where the St. Louis Post-Dispatch has reported that the Archdiocese of St. Louis is taking disciplinary action against its own immigration task force after the group hosted a webinar on immigration and the 2020 election. That's right. So part of that disciplinary action is Marie Kenyon, who is an attorney and who oversees human rights issues for the Archdiocese as the director of peace and justice. She was put on administrative leave um, after this virtual event, which included interfaith leaders who work with migrants and refugees from around the country um, after this webinar was deemed by some to, and we'll get into who that some is, um, to be overly partisan because participants were critical of the Trump administration's policies on immigration. Right. So the participants themselves uh, say that this was not about endorsing one candidate or another, but about laying out, you know, what the Catholic Church teaches about um, migrants and refugees um, and just kind of like laying out the facts. Um, And the fact is that refugee resettlement has reached historic lows under President Trump. The Catholic Church's teaching on immigration and migrants and refugees is pretty clear and like that's not disputed. And the fact that all immigration, legal, illegal, documented, and undocumented refugees, migrants, all of that has gone down to historic lows, as you said, under President Trump. However, 
that did not stop some people from criticizing this uh, event. Right. So this webinar, after it took place, was um, uh, singled out by the website Church Militant. Uh, You might recognize that name from our conversation back in episode one of our new season with Mike Lewis. This is a a website. um, It's not actually connected to the Catholic Church um, that is very critical of the institutional Catholic Church and has often gone after groups that it sees as overly liberal. Or not Catholic enough in their understanding of Catholicism. Yes, correct. So they they issued an action alert telling all of their followers on social media to contact the Archbishop of the diocese to stop, quote, this diabolical campaign to elect pro-abortion candidates. And the diocese, at least, claims that it was that they were not pressured at all by church militant and that an internal review of the webinar was already underway. And that's what led to the disciplinary action being taken. And they say that this immigration task force will continue, but with greater oversight. Ashley singled out the story because she thought it it would be good fodder for a discussion about politicization in the church and sort of building off of, as she said, that conversation with Mike Lewis. Um, Ashley, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about how this went down? You know, obviously, we we don't know everything. We don't actually know if... (laughs) Church, they, the diocese was influenced by church militant or not. Right. And and we neither of us listened to the webinar. So, uh, you know, we, we can't say whether it got too close to the line in terms of endorsing one candidate or another, which would would put the the, the diocese nonprofit status um, in jeopardy. That said, what stuck out to me is this idea that like forceful statement of church teaching when it comes to immigrations and refugees is seen as like kind of like an implicit endorsement or at least a <laughs> at least a, a critique of President Trump and that makes it too partisan and yet the Catholic Church is is very forceful in the way that it it talks about abortion um, and some other issues um, around the family in a way that like, you, <laughs> those would also be considered maybe like an, a, a critique of Democrats. So why is it just I don't really get this line between like when stating church teaching becomes like too partisan if you're if you're just sticking to church teaching. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you know what? It it should be implicating upon political candidates. Right. And so this will come as no surprise to people that uh, pay attention to this issue. But the church's teaching on immigration is also going to be implicating Democratic presidential candidates as well, right? Um, President Obama was famously known as the deporter-in-chief, even if the Trump administration has taken this to new historic lows. Yeah, it just, uh, yeah, yeah. I think what I I was trying to say is, like, it seems like there's a double standard in terms of what's considered, like, overly partisan when the Catholic Church talks about issues that it has teachings on, like... Oh, absolutely. Like, we are very comfortable you know, saying very forceful things, as you said, about abortion. And I think this election season, people are sort of, you know, being more forceful than they normally would about other issues that Catholics are supposed to be concerned about. You know, you raised the question sort of implicitly, like, would talking about abortion be uh, this an endorsement of President Trump? Right. And yeah, would that be a problematic thing? If the thing that the church is worried about in this instance is is kind of crossing the line in terms of becoming too partisan and endorsing a candidate, it seems like, you know, everyone knows where the Democrats stand on abortion. So, <laughs> And this goes back to something I've tried 
been trying to harp on since we started the season is that the church's moral teachings do have political implications. And the more we try to hide from that or run from that, the more that we're going to just fall into these weird, confusing situations where we're, you know, we almost feel embarrassed to say what we actually think. Yeah. Well, we're not embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's probably, I should probably be more embarrassed about saying what I actually think. And now stick around for our interview with Karna Lozoya, the host of the Crisis Podcast. Joining us from Alexandria, Virginia is Karna Lozoya. Karna is the executive director for University Communications at the Catholic University of America and the host of the Crisis Podcast. Welcome to Jesuitical, Karna. Hi, Ashley and Zach. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so this this podcast is about the sex abuse crisis. Um, and like a lot of Catholics, uh, Zach and I and our listeners have been following this uh, with a special intensity since 2018 when the... Um, that kind of like broke back into the news cycle with the Pennsylvania grand jury report and the allegations against Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Um, and at the time, back in the summer of 2018, it seemed like it was the only thing, you know, you could think about as a Catholic. Um, but of course, you know, it's two years later and people can only hold so much in their head at once. And so now we have the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so I think it's important that we didn't keep our eye on the ball here. So I'm wondering if you could first like take us back to 2018. What was it that happened there that inspired you to create this podcast? Yeah, gosh, it's, it's amazing that it's been two years since, um, the revelation. We, we, we refer constantly back and we said, we need to stop using the word revelations, but it was a revelation when the, the revelations of 2018, I think is when a lot of Catholics realize that the sex abuse crisis isn't over and there's so much that we still need to do. I think it, well, let me just go back. I think in 2002, there was the sex abuse crisis um, in in the wake of the spotlight reports in Boston where they uncovered not only, you know, cases of, of a lot of priests abusing children, but the cover-up of the church. And that caused a huge crisis in 2002. And the U.S. bishops came together and they wrote um, what is called the Dallas Charter and implemented a bunch of reforms. And for a lot of Catholics, especially those my age and maybe a little older, we thought that that was it, that that was over, that the, the bishops had handled it. And what happened in 2018, it was this realization all of a sudden that the bishops hadn't handled it and that there was something really wrong at the heart of the church. And um, the fact that a top churchman, a top cardinal, was himself a predatory sexual abuser was a really tough moment for a lot of Catholics and, and myself included. I had just started a job at the Catholic University of America I work mostly with President Garvey in the president's office, and and I serve as spokesperson for the university. So a lot of people were asking us, you know, what what's going on with the church? How how could this have happened? And um, and that's kind of where my journey started. I kind of got thrown into the to the middle of all this. And I feel like in 2018, the revelations were different than in 2002. Both, I, I you know, there was a new generation confronting some of these allegations. But also, I mean, 
what would you say was, from my perspective, it seems like the biggest shock of 2018 was that while they had, you know, implemented all these reforms to stop sexual abuse from happening 2002 onward, they really had not grappled with and accounted for the cover-up that had happened. Is that is that the right way to think about it? That's exactly right. The 2002 was about the the, the pedophile priest. Uh, 2018 was about the bishops who covered it up. And, and a lot of the anger, uh, a lot of the frustration, the disappointment, the heartbreak, right, was directed at the bishops and mm-hmm. at this lack of leadership that people were seeing from the bishops and call it incompetence, call it irresponsibility, call it clericalism, call it covering up for your friends. I, I, I don't know what it was, but they did not address the sexual abuse crisis and they had every opportunity to do so. And in the podcast, you know, we go back to the 50s and that the bishops had knowledge of sexually abusing priests going way back to the 50s and and failed to address it. And they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And finally in 2018, something really happened with the laity where we, I think, collectively realize that the bishops can't do this on their own and that they need some help. And could you just like give our listeners like some context about Catholic U? Because, you know, this is, there's anger in 2018 towards the bishops. Like how you're in communications at Catholic University of America and how involved, how I guess tied up in the institution of the church is the university? Well, the university was founded in 1887 by the U.S. bishops, so it is the University of the U.S. bishops. That's significant because on our board of trustees, we have every cardinal who's in charge of a of an archdiocese is on our board. Uh, we have several other bishops on our board. Um, our chancellor is the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. Cardinal McCarrick was our chancellor for many years um, as Archbishop of D.C., so you're working in the communications office in 2018 when this all hits. Can I ask, what was that like personally? Did you feel like like you could stand up there and be communicated on behalf of them when you're, you know, you're processing all of this in real time? Yeah. So while Catholic University is the U.S. bishop, is the University of the U.S. bishops, we are still an independent university. So as we're, we speak as the Catholic University of America and not on behalf of the U.S. bishops. So that would be Um, the USCCB would speak on behalf of the U.S. bishops. But as the Catholic University of America, I think um, for me it was quite interesting because I had just uh, started a job at Catholic University, and before that I was communications director at the Archdiocese of Denver. So I had a lot of experience speaking for the church. And I found myself in a bit of a new role because I was no longer speaking for the church. I was speaking for the Catholic University of America, which is still the church, but it's not. So I felt the environment was a little bit different because we weren't necessarily the ones being attacked or questioned, or we weren't necessarily, people weren't saying, how did you do this? Because it wasn't the Catholic University of America that they were angry at. They were angry at the bishops. So it was a little bit of a different of a different position than than speaking on behalf of the bishops. And one of the main ways you ground the series, so the first episodes are are out right now, and it really starts with the history of the crisis. So you're going back into the 1960s and sort of taking listeners through a number of a number of issues, but also 
uh, the high profile case of the former Cardinal McCarrick. Where did you decide to to start this story and why? Well, we started it with the picture of Theodore McCarrick and James Grind that was published in the New York Times in July of uh, 2018. And I think we started it there because for me, at least personally, when I saw that picture, that was the moment that I realized the depth of, of evil that was the sex abuse crisis. For me, something just, a light just went on. What, what was it about the photo that did that? I think it was that they were both, you know, they're both in swim trunks. They're both, their shirts were off. You see James kind of not exactly happy about being there and McCarrick just smiling like it's no big deal. And knowing that, you know, McCarrick was actively abusing him in those years and just what that what what was going through James's mind in that moment, and just seeing how McCarrick just didn't have a concept of how he was ruining this young man's life. That was something that really jumped out at me from the I guess what's the third episode on on causes uh, and the the conversation you have in that episode around celibacy. Um, usually, when people think of in their mind, make the connection between celibacy and um, abuse. And, you know, it's kind of seen as like, oh, this is like a disordered way of like having your sexuality. And like, that's the cause which studies don't really, you know, prove at all. Um, But the thing that was new to me was thinking about how celibacy and the fact that they don't have children, they aren't actual fathers to children, um, prevented them from feeling the outrage, even even priests who didn't abuse or bishops who didn't abuse, they didn't feel the depth of outrage that a parent might naturally feel when they hear about abuse like this. And so they were, you know, the instinct in the 60s and 70s was to like, you know, get help for the priest. Uh, they thought they could heal it, but they, they didn't have the same concern for the victims. Um and so I, that just really struck stuck out to me. Um, yeah, that was really the missing point. Like the just this lack of understanding or this lack of empathy for for the lives that had been completely um, devastated. And 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 one of the survivors, Teresa Pitt Green, she mentioned this, and I, I don't know if it made it into the podcast or not, but she mentioned this. She said. You know, she has a real beef with the church because the the priests that were abusing her were sent for treatment to get help, and and nobody came to her house to tell her it was over. Mm-hmm. You know, n- nobody from the church came to her and told her it was okay and said, "Hey, let me let me try and heal you." And that's not something you can you can fix with protocols. You can't. So how do, how do you how do you address that you that that empathy gap? Yeah, and this is. This kind of touches on 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 the whole issue um, because that's how, exactly how we have been trying to address this, this since 2002 with um, new protocols and with processes and with training, which are which are important. That we, we don't want to like disregard that. I don't think which are totally important, right? Like you need that's basic, right? That's the foundation. Um, but there's a whole other level of that empathy how do you create that atmosphere where you're actually concerned for the victim and not just because you have to and it's part of the process right um where you're actually apologizing to victims because 
you understand that their lives have been destroyed and not just because it's what the PR person said you had to do, right? Do you think bishops are are there? <laughs> I can't speak for the bishops. Yeah, and I don't want to put them together as if they're... I can't speak for them, and I... And they're not all the same. Um, How about this? Are, are there reactions that have happened in the past t- two years yeah. or recently that you've observed and thought, okay, maybe maybe there's something different happening? I think there is something different happening. I do think um, we had Archbishop uh, Gregory on, and he had some really good um, comments that he made, and and it's in I think it's in episode three where he said that he's learned the difference between a pastor and a policeman. But what he didn't say, you know, when he said the difference between a pastor and a policeman, you know, I think he was really referring to being a pastor to his priests, right? But he does, he he did have that line where he said that um, he can't take a chance with someone else's child, right? He can't put a priest back into ministry who even has a 1% or 0.01% chance of abusing again. Like, he can't take that chance. So that definitely shows that something has changed. But we do talk in, you know, there was a case here in the Archdiocese of Washington in 2014, um, Father Urbano Vasquez, who sexually assaulted a girl, and the family asked him, Asked the the family reported it to the pastor, but asked them not to go to the police. So he didn't, and and he ended up uh, sexually assaulting a few other girls. It took three years for that to be reported to the Archdiocese of um, Washington's Victims Assistance Coordinator. And once it did, you know, Archdiocese did all that it needed to do and followed the processes, and and they were able to remove the priest. But it makes you think. How, in 2014, does a pastor not understand the processes, right? So I think there is still a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of awareness of all of the complexities of this issue and uh, and a lot more training to be done. Yeah. In your experience, um, has the church gone far enough in kind of, you know, bringing in law enforcement or other impartial agencies to, to help them? do this, you know, recognizing what their weak spots are and, and having the humility to, to let law enforcement do what it, only it can do. Yeah, I, th- I think on that point, I'm, I'm going to have to give the church like an A+. Plus. Um, when it comes to reporting, except for issues where, you know, a pastor maybe doesn't quite understand his role as a mandated reporter um, that I mentioned before, when it comes to reporting to the authorities and allowing the authorities to do their investigations, I think the church has 100% learned its lesson. And even working in the Archdiocese of Denver, I saw this happen on several occasions. And and I think that openness, that transparency between the authorities and the church, I think I think that is there. And 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 I think that's a that's a really good thing. And um, you know, as a <laughs> As I'm doing this podcast, it it can be a really dark place when all you're doing is thinking about sex abuse in the church, and you read these stories, and a lot of them are historical, and you're got you're thinking, gosh, how how could that happen? And you you kind of start having this very like negative opinion of priests and bishops and just the church in general. But 
as I've been able to interview and, and talk to so many different people, you realize how far we have come since 2002. Um, there could be an argument to say that that, you know, it's kind of sad that we were so behind the curve in 2002. But the reality is that we've made a lot of progress. And the Dallas Charter was huge. Um, there's a lot more awareness, particularly among parents and among children, um, of what good touch, bad touch is and um, when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate for kids to spend the night um, in a rectory. Um, never. I think we've all learned that lesson. Um, you know, so I think that's good. And so here we are, right? And, and, and so I think that's what this podcast is about. It's like recognizing the terrible decisions that were made in the past, but at the same time, this is this is where we are, and uh, and and where do we go from here? This is like a really tough topic to you know deal with and sit with and maybe listen to a podcast series on. But can you tell us maybe what you appreciated the most about you know creating Crisis, delving into this, and why you think that um, your listeners will appreciate Crisis? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to give kudos to everyone who does a podcast because it's a lot harder <laughs> than um, <laughs> than you guys let on. Uh, I, there's such a craft to storytelling, and and then there's such a technical aspect to getting good audio and, and setting up interviews and all that. So, I think just the whole process of creating a podcast was fascinating, and 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 I learned a ton. But as far as the podcast itself, I've been getting so much uh, feedback from people, even like family members um, that don't uh, really understand what I do. Um, I've always worked for the church. I'm the only one in my family who's ever worked for the church, so nobody quite understands what what that's about. Um, But I've been getting a lot of really good feedback from a lot of friends and family um, just saying how helpful the podcast has been. They said they didn't really understand all the issues um, surrounding sex abuse, and it kind of, the podcast was something that just kind of brought it together for them and helped them think through all the issues. And I think at the end of the day, that's what I hope this podcast does. We don't, sometimes I struggle with like when people say, well, what's the, what's the answer? <laughs> why, did, why did this happen? Uh, what can we do to prevent it? Um, I think those are very difficult answer, difficult questions, and I don't know if we'll ever find an answer. Maybe in a hundred years, when they write the history on this, they'll they'll have some more clarity and more perspective. Um, for right now, I think what we want to do is help people kind of get their heads around it, identify what the issues are, kind of help them navigate through the major milestones of it, learn some history and um, and some of the key cases of sexual abuse. And realize that the key here, for me, the key takeaway is is vigilance. We just have to be on top of it. And when cases come up, we, we have to know what the process is and we have to follow it. And um, when we have kids, we, that we have to teach them the warning signs. They have to know what good touch, bad touch is. Um, parents have to be aware uh, and all these things. So... Um, I think vigilance is really is really the key here. And I think just having a language and having a framework to talk about the issue for me is also really key. And also just talking about it. 
I think the worst thing we can do is stop talking about it. That's how it continues, right? Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you've done in your own vocation and keeping us as a church talking about this still. Um, We do have one final question for you that we ask all our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh gosh, I knew this question was coming. That's such a hard, um, it's such a hard question. Um, I've been working a lot on the issue of racism at Catholic University, and we um, we just started a committee called the Thea Bowman Committee. So, so for the committee, I had to um, I had to you know help craft some of the the messaging around it. So I had to do a lot of research on Thea Bowman, and I didn't know anything about her. And uh, so I found out she was a Moore scholar. She did her thesis on St. Thomas More, which I did my thesis on St. Thomas More. And um, and so I just like found this like real kinship with her. And then um, I saw her uh, address to the bishops. And, um, and it was fascinating because she's talking about Black Catholics and asking, you know, the, the bishops to create space in the church for Black Catholics to come to the church as Black Catholics. Uh, which was really inspiring. But I found her, when I was listening to it, uh, she was inspiring me to bring my own gifts and and talents to the table. And um, and I am not a Black Catholic. And uh, and and to me, that's a sign of sanctity. When when you're able to give your message, and it becomes universal, and it, it applies to everyone. And that's what she did to me. And I'm getting a little emotional because. Um, <laughs> She really spoke to me, and uh, and you know that doesn't happen very often uh, with people that you know you only know through YouTube, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would hope she's canonized soon. I think she was a really uh, special person for the church. All right, Saint Thea Bowman, pray for us. Yeah, <laughs> Karna, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us. Um, where can people find? The Crisis Podcast. I assume you, where they find all of their podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> you can find but it where, where you can find they learn more about. Yeah, where can they um, learn more about the Catholic Project? Yeah, they can also go to thecatholicproject.org, and um, and they'll have all the information on what the Catholic Project does, and they can also find out where the podcast is. All right, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a big thank you to the new members of our Patreon community, Brian St. Clair, Patricia Jones, and Edward Sweeney. Thank you so much for your support. We we couldn't do it without you and all of our uh, supporting members. Yeah, thank you so much. And we also want to give another shout out to Voting Catholic. It's a new podcast coming out from America Media. It's coming out, if you're listening to this, on Friday. The first episode drops on Saturday, October 3rd. So make sure that shows up in your podcast feed. Go search for Voting Catholic where you can listen to the trailer right now and hit subscribe. So that way it will show up with that nice little red dot so that you can listen to it first thing. (laughs) Yeah. And we've all been hearing uh, this summer and fall about the importance of voting uh from everyone chipotle instagram (laughs) facebook yeah everybody yes yes thank you thank you for the marketing campaign corporate america yes um and what the catholic church emphasizes uh is 
the need to have a informed conscience when you vote. Um, and there are a lot of issues for Catholic voters to consider. And so America produced this podcast, Voting Catholic, to kind of um, accompany its listeners as they discern what they're going to do this November. And I would like to appeal to a worst a worse angel. If you are frustrated by stupid social media posts from either your your friends, your family, maybe even your pastor, and you're like, I want I want to be a smarter Catholic voter than this person, this is the podcast that's going to help you do it. So, voting Catholic, subscribe. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I have a pretty, yeah, a desolation and I didn't think I had much. Uh, it just feels like, you know, I'm not a lot is happening. Um, I process things very externally. I talked last week about trying to be okay with boring prayer. Um, but I really struggled with that. You know, this feels like a, a sort of dry spell in my own spiritual life. And it's not the first time that I've had one of those certainly, but it's my typical response to a dry spell is to to fake it till you make it, go through the motions. Um, But the motions aren't the same as they used to be, right? We're still in the middle of this insane year. And so I am struggling with trying to figure out what the motions look like to kind of get me through this. And the real desolation was, uh, (laughs) and this, you know, this is something I felt like I couldn't talk about, uh, is feeling like I'm a bad podcast host because of that. Like, well, no, but seriously, like, and I, (laughs) I feel like I, you know, I'm trying to be as open and vulnerable and honest, like about my own prayer life. And all of a sudden, like, I've just been like slammed with like imposter syndrome yeah, for, I don't know, a a while now, I would say. And as I said that to Eric, Father Eric, you know, it sounded like this thing I couldn't really even say to anyone because it felt too like navel gazy or talking about how the, the, the sausage is made, but as I said it to this man who is a priest who publicly is a minister to a lot of people who often probably goes through dry spells, he was like, yeah, that's what ministry is about. And you have a lot of listeners who work in ministry and I'm sure they felt this before. And I was just like, dang, yeah, that's exactly how the evil spirit works. It says this thing you're experiencing, only you experience and it's super isolating and you suck. Yeah. And it's, it's just not the voice of God. So that's uh that was that has been my desolation this week. But I I had like a really good really good talk with Father Eric. So that is that's having me feel a little bit better on this Tuesday. Ashley, yeah. what do you got? Well, I think you're a great podcast. Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm and good an at, even better friend. Oh, thank you. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, what do you got? Um, so my I, I do have a consolation. Um, that kind of relates to the big three O birthday. At, I had on Saturday. Um, and it's, I think I surprised myself by how I felt uh, leading up to that day and on that day. Like, if you had asked me 10 years ago, like, where do you see yourself at age 30? I would have been like, married with a kid. Um, and if you had asked me a year ago, like, how are you going to feel if you're like still single at age 30? I would have been like, really sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I didn't. And that, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. There's just like societal expectations. There's the fact that, you know, like two of my best friends are, you know, expecting children. Um, and so like if if I had gotten stuck in kind of that compare and despair uh, mindset uh, leading up to this birthday, um, it 
would have been much harder to enjoy. But instead, I really, I see it as like a gift from God that that wasn't where I was. I was, I was in a place of just being really grateful for the friends and family and career I have um, and kind of feeling a level of trust that like, even if like my life isn't going as I maybe expected or planned, that doesn't mean God is not working in it um, in, in even better ways than I could have expected. Um, so I was just, I was, I was grateful to feel grateful. It was just like, it was, it was really nice. And it helped that I had great friends like you and Amanda and your sister helping me celebrate. So it was, it was hard to get too uh, worked up about, you know, getting old when I had so much around me uh, that I loved. <laughs> you know, I feel like longtime listeners will remember this, but I swear that in birthdays past, you have literally had a desolation about comparing and despairing. What? Yeah, every time. Yeah, so, <laughs> hey. Progress. <laughs> hey, I don't know what it is, but it's great to hear. Yeah. All right, I'll get us out of here. Sounds good. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.